A hydromat is, like we've been saying, a rotary transfer machine. And what that means is it's configured in a rotary dial. It holds the part, so it would hold a, you know, a steel part like this, and the tools are rotating. Whereas on a screw machine, the bar rotates and the tools are stationary. And each station is like its own little CNC lathe or CNC mill. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. My guest on today's show is Chris Fugate, president of Revolution Machine Works, a prominent rotary transfer rebuilder specializing in hydromats. Hydromats can seem strange and overwhelming to those unfamiliar with them. Some say their circular shape of 12 or 16 workstations reminds them of a UFO, and they can crank out complex turn parts like nothing else out there. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. I am very honored today to have Chris Fugate, president of Revolution Machine Works in Cleveland, Ohio. Welcome to the show, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I've known Chris uh, a long time, sort of crossed paths in the used machine tool business a long time ago, his family's business and the production business. Today, we are talking hydromats. We've talked about hydromats a few times. Chris is right in the heart of this industry. He is somebody who really knows his stuff about hydromats and rotary transfer machines. Before we go any further, I just want you to give a a brief summary of what a revolution does, and then we'll skip around a little bit, okay? Okay. So Revolution Machine Works uh, provides rotary transfer machines solutions for companies who are looking to either get into rotary transfer machines or if they are just looking for ways to make their current machining processes better or faster, or if they're trying to bring it in-house and they don't know where to start or don't know where to go. We provide different levels of technology and price point for different rotary transfers you know, from used to rebuilt to brand new Italian made DM2 rotary transfers. So mainly hydromats. Mainly hydromats, yeah. But you say rotary transfer machines because you also distribute a different rotary transfer machine. So just give a little brief summary of the DM2. DM2 is a rotary transfer manufacturer out of Brescia, Italy. Manufactured ball screw, fan and controlled rotary transfers that are in three or four different configurations. And they're CNC. Yes, all CNC, no hydraulics. They got a lot of good features that 
traditional ones, rotor transfers don't have like rotating collets, four or five axis chucks. You can go as large as six inches on some of these rotary transfers. Six inches in diameter? Oh, yeah. You know, the capacities are large. So they're middle, you know, middle-sized company that we are the United States factory for. And we're trying to build the brand here in the United States and introduce people to the new technology. And you even will take a DM2 unit and put it on a hydromat, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So within the hydromat market, traditionally, um, it started out as all hydraulic controlled machines. And what that means is all the units, the drilling units and things, uh, their actuation is with hydraulics, no CNC. And then Hydromat came out with hydraulic servo proportion valve controlled CNCs. So not ball screws, but traditional CNCs, but it's hydraulic controlled. And then one of the common things on a Hydromat is you have 12 stations. You may have 11 that are just hydraulic. I'm going to totally interrupt you. I'm sorry. Oh, that's fine. I want you to back up. So we're going to go into the nuances of the Hydromats in a bit, but because we've been getting into some of the technical stuff, just want to get to that now. For people that don't know what a Hydromat is, give us the 10-year-old explanation of what a Hydromat is, because you were telling me the other day and I thought you did an interesting explanation. I want people to know what the heck these machines are before we go any further. Yeah, no problem. So um, a Hydromat is like we've been saying, a rotary transfer machine. And what that means is it's configured in a rotary dial. It holds the part. So it would hold a you know a steel part like this and the tools are rotating. Whereas on a screw machine, the bar rotates and the tools are stationary. And each station is like its own little CNC lathe or CNC mill. Okay. Or not, you know, mill or lathe. So you can do turning in a station, you can do milling, you can do threading. Right. So it's like a machining center where it's just standing still, the part. Right. So it goes through, it machines it, and then it transfers it to the next station. So that's why it's called a rotary transfer because it's in a rotary dial and it transfers the part from station to station. That's an excellent explanation. And what makes a hydromat unique is that you can take the part, machine the front side, You can come in with an inverting unit, pick it off, rotate it, stick it back in the collet and machine the entire backside. And so for double-ended fittings like this or any other kind of parts that need front and back work, this is the best type of machine to use. Now, traditionally, when rotary transfer machines were first built, all of them, and even in Italy today, they're very popular as the trunnion style, where it holds the part in the middle and it never lets it go. And you machine from this side and this side and it transfers. So the trunnion style, my understanding was always, it means it's rather than up and down and the units are horizontal, things are vertical. It's a vertical. It's like a a Ferris wheel. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. It's like a Ferris wheel. That's the definition of a trunnion versus a typical hydromat. Yes. And so those machines were like, are the most common in Europe still. And they, you know, came out, what Hydromat did is they came out with a machine that they call an open top. You can easily access all of the tooling. So it's unlike the Trunnion, this is like more like a merry-go-round. Correct. Like a merry-go-round. So you, but you have full visibility and it's easy to work on. The Trunnion is very tough to change tools and, you know, it has its challenges. So if you want me to get into this to make the Hydromat, great like we discussed the other day, there's some basic principles about this machine. The first thing is, is that it's modular. And what that means is that you can easily change the machine over. Early and traditional rotary transfers are built around the part. These were built so you could run many parts. And so what that, and easily change over from part to part. And and they're modular, but what that means, you can take a unit off one station, 
and put it in the other and swap them out, move them around, no problem, right? So for people that need to visualize, explain like what a unit is. So you got the carousel and then... So you have a round dial and around it are drilling units or turning units. So you have 12 stations that you can put different tools in. You can put a station that does threading or you could put a station in that does drilling or you could put a station in that does turning. And they move in and out. And then if it's a CNC, it can go all kinds of ways. Right. It can do profiling. It can do threading. It can do milling, like it could mill this hex. Uh, it could do milling flats. And then you can also mount units from the top too. So you can do cross holes, cross reaming, you know, very versatile. And the machines were originally designed to eliminate second operations. So when guys who got in these hydromats in the 80s and 90s absolutely crushed it because they got the same piece price they would if they were running through three machines, but they were coming off complete. So being able to move the units around on the machine, what it really did was suit the United States market because it opens up a lot of the job shop guys who they don't want to buy a machine for just one part. You know, they want to run five hundred thousand on it. They want to switch over. They want to, you know, run another part. And and there's a lot more of those guys out there than there are large big OEMs. So that really, I think, helped with the popularity of the machine. So what you're saying is that a hydromat is easy to change over jobs. Absolutely. Depends how much you're changing over. Right. If you're running 500 pieces and changing over, it doesn't make any sense. But if you're running 50,000, changing over 100,000, 200,000, it makes a lot of sense if they're similar. But the key is, is to engineer those changeovers so you move as little of units as possible. That's how you get quick changeovers. If you totally strip down the machine and redo it, it's never going to be quick. Right. That's why that somebody would come to you guys because they have a big job to retool. Yeah. So another thing that's great about it is the hearth ring coupling on a hydromat in the indexing accuracy. And basically what that means is that like on a screw machine, like an Acme or Davenport, the, the repeatability of the index. Now, there are some screw machines that do have the hearth type coupling, the modern ones. Yes, all the modern ones do, like all the newer ones. But, you know, the traditional U.S. old school screw machines do not. They have double pin locking and different mechanisms. And what that means is, is that when you go to drill a hole, let's say, you want this, when that thing indexes, each station indexes in front of that drill, you want it as close to center as possible. The closer you are to center, the more it's going to cut accurate the size of the drill. If you're off center, it's going to cut that oversize. So the hydromat repeats very well from part to part in front of each tool. And so that has made it so you can hold very tight tolerances. And so you can also center each feature individually or to another feature. So you're able to hold very tight tolerances. I mean, there's a bunch of features, but the last major feature is that on a screw machine like an Acme or a Davenport, and again, like we mentioned, the modern ones are not like this. They're independent. On the old school stuff, all the spindles on each station rotated the same speed and the end slide fed at the same feet. And so you're a slave to your slowest RPM you can run. The Hydromat has individual feed and individual spindle speed, so you can maximize your tooling conditions in each station. And that means your cycle times are faster, your tool lives are longer, and everything's just a better process overall. So those are the three big things that, that made the machine very popular and still make it no, great. That's a, that's a great explanation. All right. So people have a little bit of an idea now, um, if people didn't before. So somebody gets a part, 
and they're trying to decide if it's a Swiss part, if it's a CNC lathe part, if it's a multi-spindle part. And there are arguments often for different machines, um, and it depends on expertise. It depends on often on volume, material maybe. So tell me a specific part, definitely Hydromat rather than the others, and then maybe something where kind of going back and forth, like it's that toss-up. All right. So basically, with a screw machine, you can only really work one side effectively. Okay. Like I said, you have limited back working stations available. This part has all these grooves. It has cross hole, has a thread. It has work down on the inside. And then it has brooches and threads down in here. And then it has outside threads. So to complete this. And what diameter is that part? Uh, it's thir 13 sixteenths. Uh, it's almost an inch, about one inch. And it's very long. So this part here on a screw machine, you traditionally only have eight stations max. You know, you can do some things like form tooling and things like that, but you're not going to be able to complete all of these ops within a screw machine. But with a rotary transfer, you have 16. What about a spindle stopper? Could you do it with a spindle stopper? No, because you still don't have enough back working stations to do the backside of the part. You only have enough to really do everything from the front. What about a Swiss machine? Could you do it with a Swiss machine? Now, you could do it with a Swiss machine, but a Swiss machine for this part would be about two minutes or a minute. You know, on a Hydromat, it runs in 20 seconds. Two minutes to 20 seconds. Incredible. But the difference is if you run in 500 of these or 1,000 or even just 50,000, you want to put this on a Swiss machine. But if you're running a million, you want, definitely want to put it on a transfer machine. You know, so that's where the argument between the Swiss and this part come, would come into is what's the volume? And what, what kind of cycle time do you think it would be if you, say, ran it on a twin spindle, twin turret, CNC, five-axis lathe? You're talking even longer than two minutes? Yeah, two minutes, minute and a half, two minutes. I mean, it, it would be a long part. I mean, there's a lot of work here. And this thing was absolutely maxed out on the transfer machine. So I, it would be hard for me to think it would be much faster than that. What about length of a part? If a hydromat is a trunnion... It can do a lot longer parts, but if it was a sort of your typical horizontal hydromat, how long can it part be? So typically, you know, I've got parts that we've set up that are eight inches long on a horizontal. You have to make modifications and put space flanges in and, and things when you get any longer than that. And plus your parts hanging way out. So you have to put a lot of supports under it and everything. So it's complex to do that. So to run longer parts on the horizontal isn't great. To a trunnion, you have the ability, say if this part's 12 inches long, you have the ability to put a chuck almost all the way down the length of the part if you need to, to support it. And you can run up to 12, 12 and a half inches on a trunnion without modification. So it's great for shafts and, and things like that that just have end work, you know, or has like a slot in the middle. The HS machine is a machine that holds the part from the bottom like this and the chuck rotates like this. So that's also a good, you know, you can run some longer parts on it. And often that machine would be using blanks already, you know, like hot forged parts and then or cold forged parts, put it on with a robot or a loading mechanism. Yes. And that's becoming more and more common today is actually a lot of people are making parts or their near net shape blanking parts and running them. So like 30 years ago, somebody might have taken an Acme or a Wickman and put a mechanism to use that as a chucker, right? 
Right. So they would have ran it off the bar machine and blanked it. Then they would take it and put it into a chucker and secondary it. And then a lot of times they may put it into a drill machine after that and drill it. And then, you know, the transfer machine comes along and makes it all in one crack, you know, so it's just a much better process. Now, you know, like you said, the borderline parts, okay? I tell people all the time, there are parts that are just way better screw machine parts, more easy to run, you know, as far as feature wise. Um, But the screw machines can make some complex things like this part here would be a borderline. Do we put it on the hydromat or do we put it on the screw machine? Because you see here, this has no back work. It's just a cutoff. So you can, this part runs on Acme Gridley, but the customer had a family of parts that was similar. So we ended up putting this on the hydromat. This here, a, a shop probably would just lean toward what their expertise is. They would say, yeah, we could put it on the hydromat, but we've got 30 Acmes out here and they would just put it on an Acme. You know what I mean? Now, if this part's out of steel, maybe it's, you could probably run it faster on the hydromat because you have individual speeds and fees and you can profile this and you're not doing form to it. How difficult is it to learn to run a legacy hydromat and then a, a CNC hydromat? It's a six month to a year learning curve to to really understand what you're doing and you got to have somebody to call. And that's what I tell people. When I first started, I had guys I called every single day. I, I mean, I drove them nuts, but I tell people, you call me or call our text, you know, text us every day, all day, because I had to have somebody to call. It's tough to, to know whether the problem is just a normal problem that you have during the operation or if it's like an actual machine problem. And, and it takes a while just to go through it and experience it. And then, you know, six months later, the things that were hanging you up for hours before, it's like no big deal. You know what I mean? So it takes a while. There's a lot to learn. And what really blows people's minds, they look at this thing, it looks like a UFO. And so what we tell people is just break it down. Each station, it's producing its own part. So if you make that station to print for that station all the way around, it becomes a puzzle. It just adds a hole, then it adds a thread. And so if you focus on just what is the station supposed to be doing, how much is supposed to be taking off, how's the tooling supposed to be set, and it's all correct, and you do that for every one, then together it all works. And so it kind of slows it down for people. And we usually draw out each station with the tool setting so and what the part's supposed to look like so they can measure it in each station and make sure it's right. And that's the only way you can put this whole puzzle together a lot of times. Now, once you've been in it a year or two, you start looking at it and going, well, we can move that over here and move that over here and it'd be better. And then you then you really know you're understanding what's going on. You've got an interesting story, how you got into this racket. Yeah. <laughs> Some days I wonder, right? <laughs> yeah. Tell uh, me about it, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, you're in the same boat, really. <laughs> sort of. There's yeah. similarities. Yeah. You know, the first time I met Chris, he came to Graf Pinkert because Graf Pinkert had sold his family business, a Wickman multi-spindle. Right. Give us the three-minute bio of how you came up into this industry and, and then got up to where you are now. Okay. So uh, my dad, uh, Dan Fugate, owned a uh, screw machine shop called DNS Machine Products. And it was located in Aurora, Indiana, um, where I'm from. And Lawrenceburg, Indiana is where I'm from, which is right by Cincinnati. And so I was born into the business, essentially. I remember going there, uh, you know, very young, two years old, three years old, you know, just getting dirty, messing around, uh, you know. So, you know, you grow up around the business and my our shop had 30 Acmes, 30 Davenports and 15 Hydromats at the end. And we were primarily automotive. So uh, I went to college and then I got out of college and, and the plan was, was for my sister and I to run the business. My dad started me off running Hydromats and Davenports. It was a big learning experience. Uh, I uh, 
you hadn't run the machines. Oh, no, I had done anything and I didn't like it. I mean, it wasn't great, you know, but I'm thankful every day. I grew to like it, but at first I, it's not, you know, it's not really what I wanted to do, but I'm thankful every day that I did it. And, uh, and then after that, you know, I got to kind of know the machines a little bit. I'm not an expert by any means. So Davenport's and... and Hydromance. You didn't do Acme's or Wickman's or the Acme's were there, and I and eventually I moved into engineering where I did do engineering and tool design and things for the Acme's, but I never ran the Acme's. I just was around them a lot, you know, problem solve, troubleshoot. But at that time, my experience wasn't great. I mean, these guys who were working there knew way more than I did. You know, I learned from them. I learned from trying stuff and not working. I learned from wrecking stuff. I, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's just how you learn. But the biggest influence on my career is, was my dad. He sat me down. And I remember for a year period, he literally taught me everything he knew about machining, tooling, tool design, speeds and feeds. I would bring in these layouts and he would just redline them up and say, try again. And I'd get mad. But that whole process <laughs> took forever, right? In my mind. But that I, I used those principles that I learned at that shop every single day for just whatever. Amy, you can endlessly think about the references. So, you know, what happened was is 2008 hit. We went from, you know, 60 employees down to about eight. And then we built back up to about 40 in 2012. And he got an offer to sell the business. And it was just, uh, we were just kind of all worn out. You know what I mean? We were done with the, the automotive roller coaster. And, uh, and, you know, of course, that was pretty traumatic what happened. Did you sort of have a choice like to carry the business on or to do something else? Yeah, we, we did. And it just was a good situation for, for all to move forward. You go through that downturn. And it just changes the way you think about everything, you know, because it could just like for all these shops and all these guys out here, it could just end any time. I mean, the customer pulls the work, you're done, you know, and and that's just not a world we just didn't want to live in it anymore. Because it's interesting, you know, from my standpoint, like, you know, the grass is always greener. I look at some of these customers and they just have these long running jobs and (laughs) just seems like they're coining money, you know, like I know that there's risk. I mean, you've experienced both being in the selling the equipment. I mean, look, what you do is different than what we do. But at the same time, selling the tools to people versus making the parts, what is a better business model? And it may have to come to down to more than just a business model. It may just come down to like lifestyle or how you like running a company. You know, I have thought about this a lot. When I first got out of production business, I was so happy. <laughs> I was like, man, (laughs) this is great because there's always that impending doom of shutting the line down. There's always, you know, nothing can stop. You can never stop. Like you can never have these issues or, you know, the machine can never be down. And if it is, it's... But is that an automotive thing more than anything? Or you think that's pretty much for everybody? I think that companies stop carrying inventory and doing the just-in-time thing. And of course, they have safety stocks or whatnot, but... I think it's everywhere now. Everyone runs their, their uh, you know, not everyone, but the majority of people run the business. In I mean, it might have changed a little bit now with COVID. They may have different philosophies. Yeah, maybe now it's better. Listeners, first, I got to tell you, I'm so grateful for you guys tuning in. I know we have lots of competition out there. Freakonomics, This American Life, Joe Rogan. Also, I just want to let you know, if you have guest ideas or questions for me or Lloyd, 
we'd love for you to reach out. And if you want to talk about future advertising opportunities, we're very happy to talk to you anytime. Feel free to email me at noah at graphpinkert.com. That's N-O-A-H at G-R-A-F-F-P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot com. And now back to the episode. So I guess here's the deal. Uh, production is, it never stops. If you can keep your business balanced amongst different industries and different customers, and you never let a customer quote unquote own you by having all of your business, I think production is a wonderful business. We were a lot of automotive and these guys come in and they say, this is what you're going to do. And if you don't, you're going to lose 15 jobs. And so you start doing crazy stuff. And so it's bad. Now, machine building is a better pace, but it also... Machine buildings, that's damn hard too. Machine building has its own challenges. (laughs) Yeah, Absolutely. You have some similarities with Graf Pinkert. Graf Pinker does refurbish Wickman's to some extent. I mean, nothing like what you guys would do with a hydromat. Turnkeying jobs. I mean, once in a while, we'll turnkey jobs for a customer, but it's definitely not something we relish. Yeah, It better be a good incentive to do it. I, I, I hope nobody's getting annoyed that I'm saying this right now. So this story is great. Let's just go a little further. So you get out. Yep. Get out. And, and some of the first jobs I had was people who we sold equipment to or... Did you have a game plan right away? You're like, I'm out of this and now I'm going to be on the other side, servicing, selling, etc. Yeah. It was about just like that uh, detailed and official. I just said, yeah, I'm going to start rebuild. I'm going to start working on Hydromass. And I had gotten somebody to let me rebuild a 36100 unit and I was off and running. I even remember I was back in the corner of DNS. I had a little workshop set up and, uh, you know, we knew the price was selling, but, you know, before it was all closed, you know, I was working on stuff. Had you rebuilt a unit before? Yeah. So we had done stuff like that in the shop. You know, I was doing it and I was also getting help from some of the guys, obviously, who were working there. So it was just kind of one of those things where it seemed like a, a, I knew that there was a need for another option on these machines um, for many reasons. And that for everybody who doesn't know, Hydromat units, even used, they can go from five grand to back in the day to 30 grand, you know, like the best of the best recess units. So it's amazing when you think one unit, like the price of a cheap used machine. So that's why there would be demand for somebody rebuilding a unit. Right. And, you know, the OEM did a great job at servicing, but you can't service the entire, I mean, nobody, we can't service everyone. OEM meaning Hydromat. Yeah, yeah, Hydromat, yeah. And nobody can service all of these customers. I mean, once you get a brand so big, actually one of the biggest challenges when I first started was actually finding used Hydromat equipment. I don't know if you remember that, but it was like scarce when you found it, you bought it. When, what years are you talking? I was talking like when we first started with Hydromats in 99 up until about, I'd say 2013, 2012, it was very challenging to find used Hydromat things on the used market. And so probably not in 2008. There's probably plenty. No, no, that's when it really started booming is this. There was a ton of stuff available then. You couldn't get rid of it. Right. But before that, your choice was pay 30 grand at the Hydromat or, or nothing. You know, so if you found a unit, even for... 25 or 20, you know, guys bought it. 
because it was not out there. You know, now I, you know, I can't point to why, but you know, there's stuff all over now. That was one of the things that okay, was a challenge so you for were, us. So. so you were rebuilding the units, kind of doing your own thing. Okay, then what happened? You've got an interesting journey, so I want to know about it. Yeah, it's been a ride. So uh, I brought a company in to look at some of the equipment we had left over. And they said, we'll buy it if you come out and show me how to use it. A production. Yeah, production shop. Yeah. If you set it, can you tool it up for us? Can you set it up? Can you show us how to run it? I was like, this is great. You know, like, and You're like, hey, I've been running these for years. I know what's up. Yeah. So then how'd that go? Well, that's what I thought. So... <laughs> <laughs> Did they want you to turnkey the machine too? Oh yeah. And so through that process, I turnkeyed the machine. I tooled it up. We got it set up. I got them trained. And wait a second, wait a second, back up. Did they have any hydromats yet? No, they all they had was Acme grids. Oh, okay. Those are always the people you're scared to sell machines to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the what I learned was is I, I learned how to translate Acmes into hydromats for people. You know what I mean? And correlate concepts on both machines, which really helps us today because a lot of our work comes from taking out old Acmes and putting in hydromats. So um so anyway, so I, I set the part up, run it, everything's good. But it took me I lived in South Dakota for two months, you know what I mean? And it was uh it was interesting. So, but it was a lot harder. I hope they paid you enough that you could survive. Well, here's the deal. I remember I charged $65 an hour and I thought that was the most money ever. I was just like, this is awesome. You know? So yeah, I was fine. I was single. I, it was fine. I was young. It was good anyway. So, but what I learned was, this is what I learned. And then I, I started to get more customers, you know, et cetera. And did the machine turn, it turned out okay? Yeah, it ran. It's still running. So it's all good. So what I learned was when you're in your shop and all you've dealt with is stuff that you've dealt with, you might have a good ex level of expertise there, but there is so much, I mean, that's like 10% of the world. And so like, I really wasn't an expert and I didn't try to like misrepresent the fact that I, I really thought I was. Cause you knew about typical automotive parts. Right. And, and so, and in this business and in this industry, in this niche, this Hydromat, you know, Hydromat has done a great job at setting customers' expectations of the service and things that they're going to get. So if you don't meet that, like we have to be better than the OEM to get work or have some advantage to it, right? So it took me a while to get up on plane and really get the knowledge gap and the experience. But what has happened is since I've been in hundreds of places now... I have seen and experienced, and we've done a lot of jobs. Uh, and, you know, so your experience grows and you become an expert. I mean, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I guess it's like all machining. But there's so many, to use a trite cliche, you know, there's lots of ways to skin a cat. There's so many ways to approach a part. And some ways are stupider than others. And particularly when you're dealing with a 12 or 16 station machine with a gazillion different attachments you can put on. So I'm sure you've seen some crazy stuff and probably learned some crazy stuff. And then later you went, oh my God, what the hell was I doing with that? Right. Like every year I look back and went, man, I learned a lot this year. So what happened, I did that business. It was called Legacy Machine Works. I had that business up until 2016. And then my partners, Mike Plenzik and Chad Derbyshire, worked at another company that did. So you guys, similar to what you do now, you were rebuilding, you were supplying units 
Yeah, but it was kind of like a two, three guy band. You know, I mean, it wasn't anything. I was doing a lot of the stuff and using people that I knew. And it was hard to grow. It was good. I made good money and everything was fine. But it was tough because I, I would like work on the machines and I'd package stuff up and then we'd take it to UPS. I was, you know, all that stuff. And so it's hard to really grow the business and get sales and go out and do things. I got a lot of sales by word of mouth. First machine rebuild I ever got, I put parts for sale out on eBay and put my ad for Hydromet Rebuilds on eBay. And then someone saw that and gave me a call and gave me a shot. You know, it just works out like that. So we did a good job. I, I built a, a decent customer base. And my soon-to-be partners, they worked with my competitor. And so they were looking to start a thing. And so we decided it would be best to just pull together our resources and start the uh, Revolution Machine Works. We had to wait out you know, a couple guys had to wait a year, you know, for knock competes and things like that. But yeah, so that was a big challenge, uh, you know, uh, which wasn't a big deal, really, because I have been doing the stuff myself anyway. But it, it was still, you know, we had to work through and it. More or less now, if you want to buy a used turnkey hydromat, there's a few other guys out there, you know, one man bands. Yeah, that's what I was back before Revolution. Yeah. Basically, if you want a hydromat, you know, you guys do the works, right? You'll put like PLC on there and like, oh, yeah, you know, replace everything. Yeah, we strip the machines all the way down to the casting and we rebuild them up to OEM spec and we put new, all new electric, all new hydraulics, all new PLCs. We do, we have our own CNC servo units that we use from DM2. So we have our own platforms to tool your machine up uh, and turnkey it any way you need it turnkey. Fanic control. Fanic control. Yeah, Fanic 30i controls, which is great because they don't go obsolete. So it's a good selling point for our customers. Um, Give me the range. Okay. Somebody comes with a, needs a 16 station, needs all the stations tooled up, wants it gone through everything units totally gone through i don't know what what are we talking say first just no cnc on it but just the plc and rebuild let me guess like 600 grand yeah if we're providing the machine and all the equipment it's going to be 500 to 600,000 if they are providing the machine you're looking in the 250 to 350 range for just the rebuild just completely giving them the machine back what model do you prefer? Like Graf Pinkert, we would not rebuild somebody else's machine. It doesn't really make sense to us the way we've always been. What would make sense business-wise to you guys? It could be a good deal if they made it interesting enough. That's a hard question to ask. It just depends what their part's like. That pretty much dictates the configuration and what model you use. And that's based typically on diameter and uh, how many stations you need. But if I just were to, if you were asking me what's my favorite hydromat, I'd say it's the HB4512 is my favorite hydromat. And the reason is, is because you have bigger capacity all the way through the collet. So you can run 45 millimeters deep into the collet, whereas a 16 station, you can only run 45 millimeters. So there's more stroke on a 12. Well, no, just like you can hold bigger parts. And oh, okay. when you're working on it, there's more space within the machine. So me personally, that's why I like it better. So when you're putting in cross drills or putting in verticals or doing CNCs, you have more space in between the stations. Now, the, the 16 station is great because you have four more stations, just like a six versus eight spindle screw machine. Right, right. But it's cramped a little bit compared to the 4512. Now, the 2512 is great if you have one inch part or below because it's very fast. 
the indexing is is a half second, whereas the bigger machines are 0.8 seconds. You don't lose that much, really, but you do over time, millions of pieces, it, it matters. And so um, I like all the machines for different reasons, but my favorite is the 4512. Okay. Just because it's more space for me to get in and work on. <laughs> you were saying that as far as selling, actually your preference is to sell the spare parts and the service as opposed to doing the full rebuilds. In a way, that's an easier business, correct? I know they go hand in hand, like you kind of need one for the other. Yeah. So our business is a service-based business. And what I mean by that is we are very service intensive. We are very relationship-based with the customer. That means like when we, your lead man's there, we're going to send our service guy in. And not only is he going to fit your machine, but he's going to give your guy his phone number. He's going to give him his, his text and say, you have any problems other than this, just at all, anytime, call me, text me. And believe me, they do. And we don't charge for that. So we get our sales because we help people. We fix their problems and literally everything stems off of that. I prefer to sell it all, but what's easier for us is the service and the parts are good business because it's parts are transactional and the service is a great relationship that we're building and we get to help people. And there's no better sales tool than a guy coming in and fixing your machine. It's like, well, they know what they're doing. They just fixed my machine that I couldn't fix. Any sales guy can sit there and, and talk all day about how great they are. When you send a guy in and he shows you that they're great, it sells. And for us, we don't try to upsell or do any of that stuff. We go in and try to fix your problem. And if you want to buy from us, we want to sell to you. We want to help you. See, to me, it seems like both of what you're doing is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> but service, that's sort of an ongoing thing that people need. You know, hydromats for us used to be, you know, I always say we're in the treasure hunting business. Hydromats were, they were a prime treasure. We'd go everywhere, Italy, Norway. Yeah, man, that was fun. Bought these 2512s in Norway. Had to wait a year for them to finally go down in price enough to buy them. Right, yeah. Um. And then just then sold them to a rebuilder. But my point is, even when you get a good buy on a, on a used Hydromat, it takes 10 prospects to sell one Hydromat. I don't know what it is, but even if it's a good deal, people who buy Hydromats, they're very, I don't know what it is. They're indecisive. Maybe it's because it's a big investment. Maybe they're overwhelmed by, do I really need it for this job? I don't know. But hydromats seem like the hardest machines to sell. I mean, it's a big investment all across an organization. It's not only financial, but technical wise. You got to have somebody dedicated to learning that machine and being able to learn the machine. Space wise, I mean, you can fit a couple CNCs in the space of a hydromat. Sometimes you're space limited. And then you have the financial side. And then there's just such a sea of unknowns. You have a much better chance of selling a hydromat to somebody that already has 20 of them. They got a million units on the shelf. You know, they're confident. And where you, I mean, I'm sure you're selling to plenty of those kind of people too, but you're trying to like get people who it's their first one, the hydromat virgins. Absolutely. Hydromat virgins, really, it's tough, man. It's a tough nut to crack. <laughs> we always talk, we pick the hardest way to make money for sure. <laughs> you know, so uh, I look around and think the same thing you think. I just am like, what are we doing some days, you know? But it's rewarding when it works. And when you see people order a second machine, you're like, man, uh, we just changed everything there. That's awesome. And it's good. And those customers who let us introduce them to Hydromats, we do really well with because we all used to work at shops, a lot of us. A lot of us used to work at Hydromat and we all used to work at shops. We know what it's like. We know what they want. 
So we got both sides of the spectrum on experience, you know? Well, there's nothing better than being able, if you're trying to sell to somebody, to put yourself in their shoes. My problem is that I feel like there's a tribe of people who have run production and I'm around the tribe plenty. And I'm even, you know, I'm like the town crier in the tribe, the (laughs) podcast. And, you know, like people pay attention to what we do. But I'm always going to be an outsider. I'm always not going to be quite part of that club. And there's something really special about somebody like you. Somebody can come to you and they can talk about something they're going through. And you can genuinely go, yeah, I know. I mean, I've had the automotive company have me by the balls. Like, I know what's up. It's a great thing that you're able to do. I think it really helps me out. And I think, you know, one of the things that always resonates with me is when our family bought our first new Hydromat, I mean, that was the most money we had ever spent on. So how much did that cost? A a million? A million, four. And now if you bought a new CNC Hydromat, you're talking two and a half? Yeah, two million. And so for my family and our family business, this was a huge deal. Like this was the deal. And I take that lens when I'm dealing with any of our customers is that this is maybe the most money they're ever going to spend on it. You know, so it's got to be awesome and it's got to be right. And we got to treat them right. And we got to see it to the end, you know, because there is no alternative for those companies. Well, for almost anybody, we spend that much money. But I'm saying especially the job shops, the family owned places, you got to get it right. It's you true. Know. You better not mess it up. No, there's a lot on the line for everyone. This is a great interview. A couple more questions, you know, just stuff I like to ask people. What did you learn in the last week? <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, just one, one interesting thing. It doesn't have to be about the Hydromat business. Well, it's kind of dumb, but I'm a Bengals fan. And I learned that uh, the Bengals can win <laughs> and can go to the playoffs. So that happened last week. That was good. Uh, Congratulations. I learn things every single day. It's hard to just pick one thing, but uh, man, that's a tough one. That's a good question. I always write that down every day. I write down at least one thing I learned. Okay. Yeah. I should start doing that. You know, it's interesting how many people I ask that question to and a good portion of them are just like, shit, I don't know what I learned. I don't know. (laughs) Oh, I could tell you. Let me tell you what I learned. This is a very important thing that I learned at the end of this year. I learned that for me, uh, when I take vacation, I need to actually take vacation instead of halfway being on vacation and answering emails and checking things and halfway not. That is such an important thing to learn. Yeah. And the reason I learned that I was pretty burnt out. The la- you know, we had a lot of action last year and I was pretty burnt out at the end of the year. And I took two weeks off completely. And I was very grateful that everyone at our company allowed you know me to do that basically. And handled all the business. And, you know, I've come back with such a renewed focus and feel so much better. I just think that that's important. And that's something that's definitely going to be a part of what I do. Um, I feel guilty. You know, you leave and you feel guilty because you have things going on. Oh, you shouldn't. Yeah. But, you know, it's just part of the part. You got to get out of that. Well, there's a podcast that we did with a guy named Ari Mizell. He's like a productivity expert. And his thing is, you have to be able to replace yourself. If you can't replace yourself, you don't own a business. You you own a job. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. So that that really says something. If you were able to take two weeks off and not need to worry, and you being the president of the business, that's 
think you should feel like that's quite an achievement. It's awesome. And and that's that goes along the same lines, you know, like when I was by myself with my previous company, I always thought that, you know, if, if I'm gone, the company's gone. But this company's not like that. And that's when you know you've really started to build something. One other question. Um, when you think of happiness, what what do you think of? Well, when I think of happiness, to be honest, uh, I see my end goal in mind, which is to be uh, the the most premier rotary transfer machine provider in North America. And I see customers happy and I see our people happy and I see the, the goal achieved. That's that's what I think about, you know, is how it looks in the end. Well, it sounds like you're saying two different things, but it sounded like what you said in the end was making other people happy and satisfied is is what makes you happy. Absolutely. I, uh, that, that's what makes me happy is when, when we say we're going to do something and other people are happy that we did it. Thank you for, it's such a great interview. No, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's great. I respect this podcast and, uh, like what you guys do and nobody covers the industry like you guys do. So appreciate that. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. Music